Good morning, Cornerstone. Will you pray with me this morning? Oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. From the rising to the setting of the sun, you are God and you are God alone. We submit ourselves now to your word. Pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us today. We confess that it's not by our own might, it's not by our own power, but it is by your spirit. We pray for those today who are absent for various reasons, for those who may be sick and shut in, Lord, that you would send speedy healing and that they would recover, and that they would recover well. And so be with us now as we go to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. On June 19th of this year, you know the story, Stockton Rush, the 61-year-old CEO of Ocean Gate Expeditions, led his four passengers down into the depths of the sea to take a look at the Titanic, Titanic in their submersible vessel. It was called the Titan. Sometime in the afternoon, the Titan lost contact with its parent ship. And not more than a day later, the search was on for the Titan to find this submerged vessel before they ran out of air. But by Thursday, the search teams gave up hope. As their unmanned submersible identified the tail of the Titan at the bottom of the ocean, then it took pictures of the fuselage where the people would have been situated. And it found the debris of the Titan scattered along the seabed. And professionals, experts concluded that the Titan had imploded, that the shell of the vessel had caved in upon itself, giving in to the unrelenting pressure of the ocean. In our text today, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, we see that Paul has been under pressure. Since the opening pages of this book of Romans, as he has attempted, as best any man can, to present in human terms the salvation plan of God for humanity. Paul teaches us in the book of Romans that God made and placed man and woman in the garden where both of them succumbed to the temptation of sin. Sin becomes the first problem that God has to resolve. Because God knows that all of the children of Adam and of Eve are going to be born with this defect, this deficiency, with the marks and the stain of destructive sin. God has his first problem. And while sin could have been the end of the story for mankind, God was able to use sin as an occasion of mercy and not of destruction. But as Paul explains in the book of Romans, mankind was not aware of our need for mercy. So God gave the law to a small group of people in order those people might recognize their plight and run to God for salvation. 
But Israel, after receiving the law, misinterpreted the purpose of the law. They saw the law as a means to the blessed life for anyone who could obey it. What they didn't realize was that no one could obey the entire law. That was a problem. God's second problem. And we know that God countered this problem by sending Jesus Christ to obey the law on behalf of all mankind. As Paul explains, God concluded that since one man brought sin into the world, sin could be mitigated in the world by one man, Jesus Christ, so that all the world could have access to deliverance, the Jew and the Gentile. That's an awesome story, but it raises another question. The Jews did not see Jesus Christ as their savior. The Jews had been convinced by a shallow reading of the scriptures that they were already chosen and that their adherence to the law would make them acceptable before God. They could point to many scriptures in the Old Testament that appeared to support their claim. That was a problem. And God countered this problem by demonstrating that the promises made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants were not referring to all of Abraham's physical descendants. Remember, Paul explained to us that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So that the promises of God pertain to all those who express faith in God's solution, Jesus Christ. These are the ones who would be blessed, Paul says, with faithful Abraham. But in a way, this does not solve the problem. Because most of Israel will never accept Jesus, and God has promised to save Israel. And God had already taken this problem into account and saved a remnant, Paul says, a remnant of Abraham's kin, so that they would not be completely lost or left out. And on top of that, God rejected the majority of Israel, we learn in chapter 10, so that he could invite people of every race, every tribe, and every tongue in order to provoke Israel to jealousy, Paul explains, so that they would be reminded of their place in him, so that Israel would come home. Each of these theological problems and their solution has driven Paul deeper and deeper beneath the theological waves of the wisdom of God. And at each new and deeper level, Paul is being squeezed a little more and a little more as each new theological solution presents before him one more theological question that needs to be answered. Paul's theological hull is beginning to creak and to show signs of breaking. And finally, Paul the apostle implodes yielding himself up to the admiring contemplation of the majesty and the greatness of God's divine plan, which Paul has been explaining to us since chapter 1. Paul breaks forth in doxology and in worship of the wisdom and the knowledge of God who set the entire plan into motion. The God who solved every spiritual crisis of mankind before the crisis had even come forth. Paul implodes and says this, listen, oh the depths of the riches 
When I read that verse, I imagine Paul just submerging in silver and gold and precious stones, moving and wading about in the treasure of God's wisdom, basking in it, enjoying the wisdom of God. The pressure Paul feels is not a pressure to answer every question on the subject of salvation. It is the pressure of being overwhelmed by the great wealth of God's unfailing love and grace. Paul is neck deep in the riches of God's wisdom. And wisdom has been understood in different ways throughout time. Even before the Jews, there were the Sumerians. Sumerians sought wisdom through the natural world. Sumerians thought to reduce every idea, every thought, every question, every concept down to one single thing. They were seeking wisdom. For the Egyptians, wisdom focused on the questions we need to know in order to conduct a good life. And for the Greeks, wisdom was concerned with the ultimate meaning of life and the nature of the physical universe. That's how wisdom has been understood throughout the ages. But in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31, wisdom testifies about herself. And here's what wisdom says. Wisdom says, the Lord created me at the beginning of his, work, of his way, before his works of old which means that wisdom is older than creation. From eternity I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no ocean depths, I was born. When there were no springs abounding with water. And from this we can conclude that wisdom was made, wisdom was born. And wisdom was born to address a specific set of circumstances. Before creation, wisdom was not necessary. God didn't need wisdom before creation. Because there were no questions, there were no problems, there were no complexities. But when God settled upon his plan to make man in his image and his likeness, when God set in his mind to make a people for his son, Jesus Christ, God called wisdom into existence to assist in the process of creation. So wisdom testifies that before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was born. While God had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when God established the heavens, I was there. When God inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set a boundary for the sea so that the water would not violate his command, I was there. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then, wisdom says, then I was beside him as a master workman. And I was God's delight daily, rejoicing always before him. Meaning that wisdom loves God. Wisdom worships God. Wisdom belongs to God. Then he ends with this, he says, I was, I was there before him rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of mankind. Wisdom loves humanity. 
And this is the most relevant characteristic of wisdom for us today, that wisdom enjoys our company. And that wisdom seeks our good in every instance and in every situation. God has made us by his wisdom. And God has made a way for us through his wisdom. So what Paul has been showing us throughout this book of Romans is the wisdom of God. Wisdom that has our best interests and our eternal good at heart and in mind at all times. God's wisdom. And God's wisdom, Paul says, is deep. Because the problem of sin is so profound. And as Paul has been considering the plight of our human condition, Paul is amazed at the fact that God has already taken every one of our problems into account. And that God, by wisdom, has made a way to save us from eternal death. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And you know that you cannot have, have wisdom without first having knowledge. Wisdom is based on knowledge. Wisdom is based on knowing. Wisdom is based on the proper apprehension of what is. Confucius wrote this. To know what you know and to know what you don't know is the characteristic of the one who knows. To know what you know and to know what you don't know is the characteristic of the one who knows. This applies to us humans, and I think it's correct. To know what I truly know, but to also be aware of my blind spots, that is what human knowledge consists of. But man's knowledge, as we know, is limited. So that for us, there is more than just these two categories of knowledge. We can know what we know. And we can know what we don't know. But mankind is plagued with this great vulnerability of not being able to know what we do not know. The unknown unknown. If I am able to articulate what I don't know in the form of a question, then maybe at some point I can find an answer. But if I do not know what I do not know, then I do not know what question to ask. When I was a younger man, maybe 15 years ago, I became a day trader in the stock market. And I studied the market, I took classes to learn all about the stock market that I could for a number of months, almost a year. And then I began to invest in stocks that I believed were going to be winners. And there was one stock in particular, a corporation that was designed to assist in the education of children, and I really liked their plan. And I decided this was going to be a profitable organization to take stock in. I went to their first quarterly meeting and I listened to their plan. They, they, they advised us and informed us that they had just broken through into a new market in the world with close to a billion people where their products could now be sold. And I was in. I transferred all of my money out of every other stock and placed my wager with them, thank you and placed my wager with them. 
And month after month leading up to the entrance into this new market, the stock's value continued to climb higher and higher. And every day I would just sit and I only invested $10 and now it's at $13. This is amazing. I was excited. And so I had on my stocks what was called a rolling stock so that when I made a certain amount of money, my money would automatically be drawn out of the account. I said, you know what? I don't need a rolling stock. I'm taking that, that protection off. I don't need that. I want my money to just keep on riding. I can ride the wave of these profits for a long time. And that was the same year that India, India had experienced that devastating tsunami. You guys remember that? That tsunami in India? They were engulfed by the floods from the ocean after an earthquake. And I knew all about the flood. I'd been following it on the news, but I didn't know how it affected my stocks. In hindsight, I can recall that my stocks began to lose their value precipitously after that catastrophe, but I wasn't able to figure out why. And since the stock's price was plummeting and I had so much confidence in this company, I said, you know what, since the price is going down, I'm going to buy more stock. That was a bad idea. I'm going to buy more stock. It never occurred to me to ask the question, why was the stock being devalued? Why were people selling? I never asked the question. I was so confident in their plan. I was all in. And day after day, I watched as my money plummeted further and further and further down. I had lost almost my entire investment. And my pride finally gave me permission to get out. It was only later that I learned that the semiconductor plant that the company was depending on to be able to produce these new products to scale was located right there in the middle of the ocean-ravaged region where the tsunami had made landfall. Because I didn't know what I did not know, I did not know how the weather affected stocks, I never factored the weather into my calculation. The more savvy investors apparently knew and they were pulling out. And I was left dragging my tail behind me as I exited the market for good. I never invest in stocks again. I lost so much money. But I did not know what I did not know. I did not know that weather was even a factor, even a question in my calculations. Humanity, we, you and me, we have a lot of questions that we'd like to have answered. We have a lot of questions about life and the path to eternal life. And Paul has done here in Romans as best he could to help us understand God's divine plan of salvation. But now, since every one of his answers only leads to more questions, Paul makes a confession to us that the judgments and the ways of God are both unsearchable and unfathomable. Under pressure, Paul cries out, how unsearchable are God's judgments? How unfathomable his ways? And this is the most, in my opinion, this is the most appropriate finale for the theological portion of the book of Romans because after this, Paul is going to move to more practical matters. This is his finale to all that he's explained since chapter one. That the judgments of God are unsearchable that his ways are unfathomable. Who but God could have conceived a plan that would turn disobedience into an occasion for mercy 
and in the process reach out universally to all who believe. Who but God could have come up with such a design? How unsearchable are his ways. His methods are mysterious and beyond our ability to fully grasp. And besides all the questions you and I may still have, even after reading Romans, because the book of Romans leaves you with a lot more questions. But there are still a myriads of questions we don't even know to ask. His wisdom is overwhelming. All of God's judgments are true and accurate. God knows the first principles of everything that exists. And even things that have not yet appeared, God already knows. And because God knows all endings from all beginnings, God always makes the best decisions. He takes into account every factor that could exist. Paul asks us the question, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who truly knows what God is thinking? Who knows what God was thinking when he created humanity? Who knows how God came up with the plan to send his only son to die for us? Who is able to explain what God's thought process was? Who can truly know why God does what he does? Who can truly know what God's end game really is? Only God. Paul goes on to praise God's wisdom and God's knowledge in declaring to us that God does not need any advice. He asked the question, who became God's counselor? Where does God go to when he runs out of ideas? Where does God go to find relief when the pressure of, of running this entire universe begins to bear down on him and God feels stressed out? Whose couch does God lay on? And of course, the answer is God has no counselors. God has no advisors. God doesn't need any. He is self-sufficient. And by the resource of his own wisdom and of his own knowledge, God always gets the outcomes that he has in mind. He has no need of outside help. Paul goes on, verse 35, to ask the question, who has first given to God that it would be paid back to him? Who does God borrow from? We know the answer that God doesn't borrow from anyone. God doesn't look to us. God doesn't look to anyone outside of himself to accomplish his purposes for the world and in the world. God has already evaluated every question that could be asked. God has already addressed every dilemma that may arise. And we can take confidence in knowing this today, that God has already solved all of our eternal dilemma through Jesus Christ our Lord. This problem that has plagued us since the dawn of time has already been addressed through the cross. But not only has God addressed our eternal challenges, God is also aware of our lesser problems. And God has already addressed all of our problems as well. Challenges and struggles and decisions that need to be made. Dilemmas that seem unsolvable to us. 
But we can be confident to know this morning that if God is able to solve the riddle of sin, if God is able to resolve the complexity of sin, the greatest crisis that we have ever faced, how much more is God able to judge and to resolve our smaller, immediate, and practical concerns? God knows all things. God sees all things. And God is able to sort out all of life's questions and problems. In fact, he already has. And this is why Jesus could speak so confidently about the abundance of provision that God has already allotted to humanity. Jesus says that God clothes the lilies of the field and he clothes us as well. God feeds the sparrows in the air and God has stored up provision for us as well. In God, there are no unanswered questions. In God, there is no unmitigated tragedy, no mysteries, and no stalemates. There are no unknowns to God. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing in his kingdom and nothing in your life. And why is that? How does God know everything? How is that even possible? How is God able to know what has been, what is, and what is to come? How can he already know all of these things? Paul concludes with this answer. That from God, and through God, and to God, are all things. That is the answer. From God, and through God, and to God are all things. God knows all of reality intimately because all of reality comes from God. That's how he already knows. Because everything that was, everything that is, everything that is to come has come from God. That's how he knows. There is nothing outside of him. There is no reality outside of God. That's how he knows. Because all things come from God. All of my life, all of your life experiences have to go through God, Paul says. That's why nothing you're facing today is too hard for him. Because whatever you are facing came from him and whatever you are facing had to come through him. God is already aware. God has already made a way. That's why nothing is too hard for him. Whatever is my lot in life, whatever is your lot in life, that lot has come to you through God. And if God has placed any obstacle before me today, if God has placed any obstacle before you today, God is able to move your mountain by his word because the mountain that you're facing has come from God huh. because the challenge that you're facing has come through God <laughs> that's why there's no need to be afraid of it whatever you are facing today has come to you from the hand of God and we know from the word that God works all things together for good to those who love him 
to us who are the called according to his purpose. So there is nothing to fear. Whatever my situation, whatever my lot in life, it has come to me from the hand of my God. And he will move every mountain that stands in the way of my progress to a closer walk with him because that mountain belongs to him. That mountain finds its source in him. And that mountain, that challenge, that struggle, that dilemma, that perplexity, whatever it is, exists for one reason and one reason only, to bring glory to his name. And that's how Paul concludes, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't know how many years ago it was that I concluded that very thing. Not from the book of Romans, but just in looking at my life. That there is nothing for me to be worried about or concerned about because whatever I am facing has come to me from God. Whatever's going on in my life, whether it be good or bad, it has come to me from the hand of God. And therefore, there's nothing to fear but to trust Him. And to realize that the depth and the wisdom of God is so great that He's already made a solution for my problems even before they appeared. That is the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And we should take confidence in that today. Whatever you're worrying about, whatever difficulty is on your mind, whatever pressing question you may have, the answer is already there. The answer is in God. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book of Romans and this explanation of our salvation. And Lord, you already know that sometimes in the book of Romans, there are more questions than there seem to be answers. Lord, teach us how to be content with the things that we do not know. Help us, Lord God, not to chase after the answers and the solutions to every question but to accept the simple truth that you have so loved us that you gave your only begotten son. And if we will only believe in him, we will be saved. And that's enough to know. Help us not to worship knowledge. Help us not to find our security in the things that we think we know, but to trust you, the one who knows all things. To trust that your wisdom will guide us safely home and help us to meet every pressing challenge that may confront us. In Jesus' name, amen.